In the dark hours, in the antique books, in the letters long lost and forgotten, there are tales of horror to frighten and disturb. Come, join us as we delve deep into the darkness. Into the sleepless hours when you dare not close your eyes. Brace yourself for the No Sleep Podcast. Volume 16, Chapter 15. Welcome, sleepless listeners. I'm your host, David Cummings. My mysterious adventures continue. As you recall, last week I left you with me and Joanna Sutherland in the Whispering Pages bookstore. Suddenly, neither of us were feeling normal. I was dizzy, my eyes unable to focus, my steps unsteady. And I saw Joanna stumble against the counter, clearly losing her own grip. I was by the door, ready to leave. I felt it swing open, felt someone else brush past me, could vaguely comprehend them running to Joanna. Then Joanna and this figure, this blur, they were both heading towards me. A hand gripped my arm. I was dragged outside. I could barely comprehend what was going on, just constant forward motion. The world around me was crinkling, like a drawing being slowly crumpled up. I was being dragged across the street to a park. The world was wrinkling and spots were appearing in my vision like flames licking at the pages of a book. I could smell the scent of singed paper and then, with no warning, it was gone. I was standing in the park opposite the whispering pages, Joanna beside me, looking as dazed as I was. Then the bookstore exploded. My phone beeped. I I don't know why I decided to look right then, but I did. It was a text sent by Jeff Clement. It read, I got to the storage unit. I thought you said it was blown up. Are you pranking me, boss? It's intact. I looked around. There was no sign of whoever had dragged Joanna and I from the whispering pages but I could already hear sirens in the distance. We need to go, Joanna said. I didn't argue. All of this was two weeks ago. So much has happened since. So much I need to understand and get clear before I share it. But there's one thing I need you to remember. Last week I told you of Joanna's decision to sell the whispering pages. You can't really sell a blown-up bookstore can you? Joanna found a VHS tape in her bag. She swears it wasn't there before. She also swears she has no memory of bringing her bag with her when the unknown individual dragged us from the store. But I felt this familiar energy the moment I touched it. The label says it was filmed by someone called Ethan Robles. 
I've stripped the audio from the video recording and filtered it through Jesse Cornett's voice to protect the privacy of any individuals involved. But even with these precautions, this story is still very much Lou's version. Lou Sheehan speaks to the man with the camera. I know why you're here. I know all about it. You want to know why? You want to know how? Or maybe you want me to talk so long that I give up something that I didn't give to the police. Something. Some detail that will make you and your little film a star. You aren't here for the story that's been told. You're here for the one that hasn't been. You want my version. (laughs) The camera shows Lou sitting at a bare metal table. His wrists aren't shackled, and he leans back in his chair. He's off-center, slightly to the right. He's bald on the top of his head. The tan prison jumpsuit makes his skin look pallid. Don't worry. I'm going to tell you a good one. One I never gave to any of them cops or reporters or crazy people. They keep on sending me letters. Thinking that I'm going to take the time to read them. He positions his hands on the table, and they're large. The muscles of his forearms bulge. I've been in here for ten years. A decade. Have you ever had a decade where all you do is sit in a cell and think to yourself, most people would break They'd snap like chicken bones. People aren't meant for it. Me, though, I can handle it. I've always been okay being with myself. But you ain't here to listen to how I've been handling my business in prison, are you? Braiding his fingers together and leaning forward, Lou peers into the camera. His expression is flat, and his look implies that he can see beyond the lens, looking directly at the viewer. Well, I'm not going to give you a retelling of the ones they know about. Frankly, I'm sick of explaining how I ate the kid from Dallas or the poisons I used when I started getting artistic. 
Those were the good times. <laughs> I want to tell you about the first one. The very first one. It's my favorite, after all. Lou no longer looks into the camera lens. He leans back and lays his hands over his paunch. You see, I always knew what I was going to be. It's like I was made for it. Things were always a little out of whack. I, I didn't see value in life. Mine or anyone else's. We, we never had dogs or cats or anything, so I went out into the woods and... I shot down birds with a BB gun and called every kill a victory. When you grow up in isolation and your neighbor is two miles down the road, you are going to become a killer. Those pussies with their camouflage in their tree stands are killers. They might be adjusted to society, but they like the blood that's on their hands. The difference between me and them... is that I don't deny what I am. He smiles. Like I said, it was always going to happen. But I didn't really know until I hit about 16 or 17. You live in the woods, you hunt, you, you track, you kill, and you eat. That's part of your life. But right before 18, I started planning. Lou bites a fingernail before lighting a cigarette. God, I must have spent about a year just thinking about it figuring it out listen I, I knew it was wrong I knew that if I got caught they were going to put me away for a long time funny thing is I, I deserve to be here I killed 37 people before they put cuffs on my wrists that ain't what humans do Soldiers, maybe, rack up numbers like mine. But they don't do it looking into their victim's eyes. While the knife is hilt deep and the blood is warm, 
when it washes over your wrist. It's just not normal. He throws his hands into the air, exasperated. I knew it was wrong, but I wanted to do it for as long as I could, and I'd say 20 years out in the world, operating as a dangerous motherfucker is a damn good record. Ask anyone if they know my name. Ask them. 90% of those fucks won't know one of the people I killed. Not one. I'm the one with the legacy. I'm the one you're afraid of. He points at the camera, his cigarette clenched between two fingers. Anyway, I planned for a long time. I'd say I gave it a year or two before I even thought about how I'd go about killing. In those early days, I thought about how to get close. Getting access to you without even being noticed. So I started taking odd jobs. If you paid, I would do it. It didn't matter. Thing was, I couldn't waste my time working some bullshit shift at a grocery store or McDonald's. I wanted to be close to the home, right up in your face. I wanted to look you in the eye and give you a chance to see through me. I'd smile at you, shake your hand, and make small talk. And the whole time I'm thinking about tearing out your tongue with needle-nose pliers. Lou leans back in his chair and looks pensive. He runs a hand down his face and checks how much room he has before his cigarette is finished. The first real job is landscaping. That got me into your proximity, but it didn't work out. You can't be a one-man landscaping team. Any respectable business sends out five or six guys on any given job. People don't notice you in a crowd. But the crowd notices if you try to break into the front door while the other guys are laying down sod. It wasn't a lost cause, though. You spend enough time bent over in the hot sun lifting rocks, you'll find that you start to get strong. A season of landscaping and I could put you down easily. I'd lifted rocks heavier than you for ten hours a day. Before he started beating the shit out of me, my daddy would say that everything is a lesson. And that, I believe, was true. When the summer ended and I needed to move on, I found work with a home security company as an installer. They had me running wires and setting up the keypads. <laughs> the great thing was I actually got inside. 
I had a partner, which meant I couldn't do a damn thing out of the ordinary. You spend enough time with another person, you learn their habits. So I didn't want to set anyone off, give any hint of suspicion. I stayed clean, kept the blood off my hands, but I learned, absorbed everything like a fucking sponge. I was an installer for a full year. I hated the job, but I learned about at least 15 different home security systems, how they worked, what they could detect, how to shut them off without sounding the alarm. If you put me on a street with 10 houses, I could get into seven of them without even sending an alert. I'm no genius. I just paid attention. He pulls an ashtray toward him with his free hand and snuffs out the stub of his spent cigarette. So, we come to the last one. The one that made me who I am. Lou folds his hands on top of his stomach and smiles. The county needs an exterminator. You can work on your own double time for emergency calls. I read the ad in the paper, and at the end it says, Be your own boss. People are always saying that third time's the charm bullshit, and I'll tell you what, I, I believe it. I call them up, and I get an interview. Turns out I... I'm the only one who called for the job in a month. Nobody wants to do it. It's a dirty job. You're in basements, attics, searching between walls and poking your head inside ductwork, not knowing what's going to jump out at you in the dark. Nobody wants to do it. I'll do it. They hire me the same day. Extermination gets me right where I need to be. I'm in your house. My job is looking for the weak places. The hidden spots. That something gets in. Best part is... You welcome me. You open the door and you say, Thank God you're here. I can't tell you how many people just left a key under the mat, left for work, and let me in their house without even thinking twice. Suddenly, I'm alone. Nobody is watching me. Watching you. Anyway, I learned the trade and I learned quick. I'm out on my own after the first month, but I don't take my freedom lightly. I'm thinking that if I start doing my thing a little too soon, people are going to notice. I start thinking that if people start disappearing right after I visit them, the police are going to spot a pattern and I'm going into a cement box for a very long time. So, I wait. 
I waited another two years before I even tried to start thinking about a move. All the while, I'm doing the best damn job I can. I'm gaining a reputation. A good one. People start calling and asking for me based on word of mouth. At the end of the first year, the majority of my business is based on referrals. Then, out of nowhere, it happens. Love. Love at first sight. Do you remember the name of the first family I killed? Lou looks at the camera, expectant and impatient. I fucking doubt it. Don't worry. I'm not going to keep you in suspense. When I called their house to return their call, their answering machine told me that they were named the Griffiths, and their family unit consisted of Marshall Amber and the small voice at the end, Irwin. They were as suburban and perfect as their answering machine message. Amber was a paralegal, and from what it seemed, she was a pretty damn good one. Marshall was at the tail end of his time in middle management on his way up the ladder. Irwin was a little pissant, but he played t-ball and looked all-American in his uniform. I know all of this because they let me in their house. They were a family that was fine just leaving the key under the mat. I must have spent hours going through their place. I looked in every drawer, every cabinet. I was under the bed and under the sink. I wanted to know them before I made sure that they were the right ones. You don't get a second first time. So they had to be just right. And God... They were everything that I could have dreamed of. I spent so much time rummaging through their place that I barely noticed the time and almost blew it. Amber came home a bit earlier than I expected, but I'd heard her car and rushed down to the basement. I got enough dirt on me to be convincing and was crouched peering behind the water heater when she found me. Amber was a tall lady with long red hair and she was nice enough to me. I liked her. In fact, I liked the whole family. How is it going? She asks. <laughs> Were you able to figure out what is going on? I had indeed. The Griffiths were concerned with some movement that they'd been hearing during the night. Marshall described it as a raccoon and trash type of rustling coming from the basement in the attic. Good old Marshall was close, but he didn't quite hit the money. They had rats. Two 
big beefy bastards. I told Amber that I found their problem and would need to come back the next day to lay out some traps and poison. She didn't seem pleased at the sound of her ads. Who would be? But she asked if I could get them out of the house without killing them. She wanted them to be removed humanely, if possible. I said that I could. It took me an extra few hours, but I got the rats out of the house and I also got a copy of the key to the front door made while they were all away. Two birds, one stone, you might say. (laughs) And then I left. I didn't see the Griffiths for another five months or so, but never stopped thinking about them. I dreamed about them, and I planned, and when I was good and ready, I came back for them. It's not easy, you know. Killing. It's not. It it takes time, and patience and thought. Do you have any idea how many steps it takes to abduct someone? Do you even understand how many times you need to pivot in the middle of a plan because some bitch kicked you in the jaw and now your timetable is off and you still need to tie up her husband before he wakes up with a bruise the size of a baseball on his head? That's the problem with people. They don't understand that murder is complicated. It's a fucking full-time job, and I got away with it because I thought out every fucking step. Well, until I fucked up. <laughs> Lou laughs. He leans back in his chair and grabs his stomach. His laugh is hollow. It sounds unnatural, but he leans forward and tears have formed in his eyes. He stops abruptly and stares directly into the camera lens. I start setting up for the Griffiths right away. Being an exterminator, I end up in some shady areas and sketchy buildings... Sometimes I find myself in a place that's going to be updated. New owner wants it pest-free before he sends in crews to lay floors and hang drywall. One place, though, never gets the update, and I just happen to keep my eye on it for a very long time. My studio... He points at the camera. And it was a studio. I did my best work there. My studio ended up being Shuck's Trucking Company. Shuck died ten years before I even knew about the place. But his son tried to restore it. He wanted to revive the family business. I killed just about every rodent you could think of inside the walls of that building but the sun never came to put the place back together again. Maybe he'd wised up. Maybe he just stopped caring. 
didn't matter. I kept my eye on it, and when they labeled it derelict and blighted, I scooped it up through a false name and business that only existed on paper. This was before the computerization of the human race. Now you can't get a stick of gum without someone knowing when you chew it. Shucks, trucking company looked like shit on the outside, but I built the inside to perfection. I boarded up the windows of the office and walled over them and soundproofed the walls. It was perfect for when I wanted to be intimate with my guests. The truck bays, though, were my favorite. I didn't know if you have ever seen one before, but a truck bay is huge. The space fits the entire cab of an 18-wheeler. Best of all, most of them have pits dug out in the center so that mechanics can get under the trucks without having to jack up the behemoths. A six-foot-tall cement rectangle already dug into the ground. Can you think of anything more perfect? Shucks had two bays, each with a pit. Plenty to work with. <laughs> it got more complicated as time went on, but for the Griffiths, I kept it simple. Lou pulls another cigarette from his pocket and lights it. He sits in quiet contemplation. He does not look at the camera. What I did to those people. He has trouble finishing his thought and shakes his head back and forth before taking another drag off of his cigarette. If they knew at the time of the trial what I did to those first people, I would have the death penalty. They would have brought back public executions and hanged me from the gallows so that the world could watch. <laughs> Lou gets quiet now. His jocular demeanor disappears and he no longer looks at the camera. He smokes his cigarette slowly and flicks at the filter with his thumb. The ash falls softly off of the ember. I took them at night. Marshall and Amber were first. I had a key so they didn't hear me when I came in the door. And I took my shoes off outside to muffle my footsteps. They didn't have a dog or a cat. There was nothing there to warn them. I made it to the side of their bed, and they never even noticed me. I was standing over Marshall Griffith, and he was breathing on me.
he had no idea that I was there. I didn't carry a gun back then. I was afraid that having one would make me suspicious. That seems odd now, especially considering how many guns are on the streets. I never checked their house for a weapon. That could have gotten me killed. <sighs> Lou smiles. He's no longer telling a story for the camera. The smile is private, the memory even more so. I had this old billy club that my dad used to use on me when he was drunk. Damn thing was ancient. Carved oak, notched handle and a leather lanyard that you looped around your wrist. I still had that when they arrested me. It never broke. I hit Marshall so hard with the club that he started sliding off the bed. I had to pick him back up because I thought he would hit the ground and make a sound. Ember didn't wake, though. She just stayed sleeping. <laughs> she was next. She spasmed. I thought I triggered something, but it must have just been the shock of it. The surprise. I don't know. Lou stopped smoking his cigarette. His legs are crossed and his arms are folded. He seems defensive, but he does not stop speaking. The cigarette smolders in his hand. I did the kid last and then tied them all up and taped their mouths. Their house has a back entrance and an alley. I parked the van out of range of any streetlights and carried them out. One by one. The adrenaline that I had pumping through me made them feel light. I could have hauled them back to the trucking company on foot if I wanted to. That kind of power is a mainlined drug. I wonder why they didn't wake up. carried them all out and not one of them made a sound it felt it feels improbable come to think of it they never stirred on the drive either they just stayed silent or they were just unconscious Eventually, they did scream, though. They sure did. <laughs> I brought them back to Shucks around midnight. It, it didn't take long. They were early-to-bed type of people. 
I watched them for weeks before I took them, and I never saw them up past 11. I guess that's what having a kid will do to you. No more late nights. No more spontaneousness. I put them all down into one of the pits. I took my time in rigging it up, but I'd gotten it just right for them. I found old gates from a fence in the yard surrounding the truck company. They were big. They had to be to keep people out of the yard. I took the gate and the hinges, then I bolted it right back into the cement floor above the pit. The lever to release the lock was just a rectangle of metal. I bolted in a catch to the floor and installed some supports to the frame of the gate. Even if you could put your full force against it, you'd never get that thing open. Only if I wanted you out did you come out. I waited for them to come to. I wanted her to know it was me. It took months, I'm not kidding you, months to prepare the surprise that I had cooked up for her. I wanted her to be awake for it. And eventually, after a half hour or so, she opened her eyes and her struggling woke them all up. Lou's gaze is distant and fixed on a particular point in the room. His stare is off-camera. The cigarette between his fingers is down to the filter, and it's burning between his fingers. He does not register the feeling. I guess it was the rats that I couldn't get out of my head. Just like the Griffiths, I just couldn't help myself. It's the same feeling when you form a crush... It's so damn hard to get them off of your mind. She told me to do it humanely, so I did. Probably the one humane thing I've ever done. I removed her rats in non-lethal traps, and I found out that they were a couple, male and a female, They'd made a big step in their relationship and decided to move in together. (laughs) Romantic. Instead of releasing them back into a patch of woods or the sewers, I took them home. At first, I just wanted a piece of the house. I wanted something to remember them by. It was going to be my first one, so I thought it was important to have a memento. Just something to hold on to. I didn't count on them breeding. People talk about fucking like rabbits, but rats have a stake in that race too. After the first month, the female birthed two full litters. By the second month, those litters were multiplying faster than I ever could have imagined. The inbred beasts just kept going, growing and growing and growing. 
by the end of the four months, I had 60 rats, and that's an estimate. I barely had room for them, let alone enough food. So then I got creative. I stopped feeding them. I let them get a taste of starvation. It felt like a science experiment. I kept them all in the second pit in the garage, and I kept glass over the top of their concrete case. I watched them every night. As soon as that food ran out, they started eating each other. Cannibalism. Your desperation. Normally, they're a family unit, but when you take that food away, that's when the animal comes through. And then I got a beautiful idea. I waited until they noticed me looking down at them. I didn't want them to beg. Some guys get off on that shit, but I don't. The work I do has a purpose. It's what I was born to do. So I do it. And I do it well. All I needed was the recognition the moment where the eyes flash and suddenly, you know, you know that you've seen me before. You are sure that you shook my hand. Maybe we shared a laugh or a story, but you can't place it. It's on the tip of your tongue, but it just won't come. When I saw the small second of recognition in Amber Griffith's eyes, I went to get the rats and I poured the whole incestuous family down on them. Those rodents hadn't eaten anything other than their family's flesh in over two weeks. I've never seen anything quite like it. And I've never seen anything that could compare to it. Lou straightens up in his chair. His gaze is still distant, but accentuates his chest. He seems proud. They fought them off for a while. But there was just too many of them. Everywhere. They were everywhere. One got a good solid bite into Marshall's finger and it clung on while he tried to pull another from off his face. It was too late. The thing bit into his cheek and was wrenching on it, trying to tear it off his face. Amber's ears were the first targets. A few of them managed to climb up her arms and were in attacking the cartilage from her shoulders, staring at the lobes. The alpha male 
the one who had started the family, had his front teeth trapped inside one of her hoop earrings and was wrenching his head back and forth, trying to free himself. They buried the boy, Erwin. I never saw him struggle. He was overwhelmed. Eventually, Marshall was able to tear away the duct tape on his mouth. The rats had bitten it, and it was enough for him to pull it away. Their dark bodies covered his chest, and they were working their way up his neck when he started to scream. He still believed that someone could have helped him. His belief killed him. He opened his mouth and began calling out, but a rat sprang at the side of his untouched tongue. The hungry animal latched on, and Marshall smacked it away, but he couldn't stop them all. With the new meat spotted, they converged on his mouth. One, the bravest, climbed between his jaws and continued crawling down his throat. The tail whipped back and forth between his lips while he suffocated. Lou lights another cigarette and leans forward on the table. I'm ashamed to tell you that I, I walked away, but I did. The squealing, the struggle, it, it was too much. It was still my first time. There was no lie in the fact that I didn't know what would happen when I threw those rats in the pit. After I saw Marshall die, I ran outside and threw up. There was no stopping it. <laughs> I like to think God created man and then walked away sick about what he'd done. I did the same. I abandoned them like God abandoned us. I should have finished it with them. I should have watched. Lou runs his free hand over his bald head. He looks at his cigarettes with disappointment. The rats picked them clean in a matter of days. All that was left of them were the bones and some pieces of cartilage that the animals didn't want. No blood. No guts. No gore. They'd eaten it all and shit it back out onto the bones of their meal. I felt disgusted with them. I started feeding them poison, and they all died in the pit with the Griffiths. Then I waited. Eventually, the family was given an empty grave in their memory. The police had no leads and no suspects. They 
couldn't understand where a family of three could have gone. I watched the news coverage like an addict looking for a fix. (laughs) Eventually, they put empty boxes in the ground and called it a day. Everyone was sure something had happened, but no one had any idea what. I was at the center of my own little mystery. Whether they knew it or not, they were all talking about me. Lou smiles wide. He puts out his cigarette. I took the bones and I laid them out on the burial plot. It was a matter of ritual. I needed to pay my respect to the people who had given me my first one. But I'd be lying if I told you that I didn't watch the news and didn't pay attention to the birth of my legacy. No. I watched every minute of it. That's how I was born. That's my version. Lou looks into the camera and the screen goes black. In our first tale, we find ourselves in a roadside diner. They're popular for one item on their menu specifically. It's one of those kinds of items, you know, with the secret ingredients where if you can guess it, you win a prize. But in this tale, shared with us by author Manon Lysette, we discover that the secret ingredients are usually pretty mundane, despite what some people might believe. Performing this tale are Aaron Lillis and Mick Wingert. So come and get some coffee and delicious cherry pie. But unfortunately, it might be some time before you can order Craig's All-You-Can-Eat Tacos. It's people, ain't it? I turned to see who'd spoken. So late at night, there were just a few customers left, and only one was staring me down unblinking. He was a heavyset, gruff-looking fella with a salt-and-pepper goatee and an old trucker hat with the name Craig on it. Beg your pardon? He gestured to a decade-old promotional poster on the wall. Guess our secret ingredient and win all-you-can-eat tacos for a year. I'd forgotten it was even there. His people, yeah? His voice was like sandpaper. It was so over the top in how deep and rough it sounded, 
if he were a WWE wrestler, his agent would tell him to reel it in some. I wiped down the table next to his. <laughs> if it was, I'd have the FDA breathing down my neck. He grunted. I motioned to his empty plate. Can I take that for you? He crumpled his napkin, tossed it on, and then shoved it closer to me without a word. I picked it up and gave the counter a quick wipe. I know it's people. I ain't gonna tell no one. It's our secret. I laughed and shrugged as I returned behind the counter and put his plate in my lukewarm dishwater. The suds had congealed into some sort of moss clinging to the sides of the sink. It was probably time to change the water, but I figured I'd wait for the last three cups of coffee and two plates still being used by the final patrons of the night. By the way, the secret ingredient? Innocent, innocuous, grounded black beans. Tastes the same, cuts down costs. The trucker tossed some coins on the table and stood up. It'd be rude to count, but I did give a quick glance to make sure there was enough. Need change? Nah. He walked over to the counter and grabbed one of my takeout menus, folded it in half, then stuffed it into his dirty jeans. He then turned on his heels to leave, but he stopped suddenly, patted his pocket, and looked me dead in the eye. Might have some fresh produce for you soon. We can figure out payment later. I chuckled and waved. He walked out of my diner without another word. The beams of his truck lit the parking lot as he pulled back onto the highway. I was just one stop on the road for him, and he was just one of the many faces my diner attracted late at night. I would have forgotten all about him eventually if I hadn't come in a few mornings later to a note on the door. Delivered your secret ingredient. It's in the freezer. I was perplexed. I didn't recognize the handwriting, but I knew exactly how they'd gotten in. The freaking key under the welcome mat was missing. I walked into the diner expecting to find it ransacked, but everything was fine. Totally normal. Until I checked the freezer. <gasps> Jesus, it's Christ God Almighty! There were three poor souls hanging from the meat hooks. It's weird, you know? I know I saw them there. I remember calling the cops in a panicked frenzy, but thank God I can't actually remember any specifics. I couldn't tell you what they look like, not their genders, not their skin color, not their sizes. It's all a blur. That was weeks ago, and I've been racking my brain ever since trying to remember what Craig looked like. It's hard for the police to find him because Fat Trucker with a goatee describes about 70% of my customer base. I was told not to worry about it. Lightning never strikes twice. They said Craig would never come back. It was too risky. But there was a message from an unknown caller on my answering machine this morning. There was no mistaking that deep, gruff voice. Your next delivery's ready. The diner's swarming with pigs, so I put it in your freezer.
Sometimes it's hard being an adult in a world where you're surrounded by the latest teen slang, trends, and behavior by being the parent of a teenager. And it's especially hard when you know they need protection and know they don't think they need it. And in this tale, shared with us by author Marcus Demanda, one chief of police knows his teenage son needs his protection more than ever. Performing this tale are Jeff Clement, Matthew Bradford, and Graham Rowett. So, do you know where your children are? Might be worth checking in on them. Give them a call. Just hope they pick up. The real study doesn't happen in the crime lab. It doesn't take place in the conference room at the table that can seat 50 in cops, both local and FBI, and most of them either detectives, forensic analysts, or technicians. And the press briefings, which happen just outside of the front entrance to the station, only slow shit down. Got another one of those in an hour and a half, I remember, taking a seat. All right, let's figure this out. Maybe find some actual meat to throw at those vultures this time. After the evidence is clean and all the hard data collected, after the fucking conference room cage match has left everyone pissed off and exhausted, then I get the tapes all to myself. There are two of these in total so far, both of them originally recorded by the killer on VHS and transferred to fresh tapes with zero video degradation by the feds. There's a third on the way, still being dusted. There are good, fresh prints on the first two originals, but neither has produced a single match in the entire nationwide FBI database. So far. Whoever he is, he'll be in his 40s, maybe older. Never arrested, never military, never worked in law enforcement, probably never taught school. Of course, there are now digital copies of these recordings as well. But I want to study the tapes as tapes, just as our mystery killer obviously intended. The interrogation room where I conduct my own personal study contains the following things. A folding metal chair, a landline phone on a cheap table with folding metal legs, and next to that a combination VCR monitor screen on loan from the FBI. This fancy bit of classic retro tech can stop the recording on any given split-second frame by number. It can zoom in wherever I choose. It can run the tape in slow motion or backwards. It can isolate audio components so precisely that I can hear the person behind the camera breathe, if I want. I don't have access to this thing because of any particular specialization or skill set. Not unless you count my three years working video stores when I was in college. I've certainly never cracked a murder case with it. But I am the chief of police, and the feds haven't seized exclusive jurisdiction. Not yet. They're still playing nice. That's partly because they've never been here before and don't know the lay of the land. It saved them some time, for instance, just having us locals on hand to tell them that Petey's Tough Guy Flower Boutique doubled as a hardware shop 
and was probably the only place in town where one could buy the exact pastel brick 2.0 paint shade that we identified on the walls of the killing room. Didn't turn out to be much help in the end. It had been stolen out of his unlocked garage last month, so no record of purchase. But still, save time and the elimination of one potential line of investigation. The other reason they haven't shut us out yet is because we're a town of only 2,500, and I'm their duly elected top cop. You meet a lot of people running for office, and in a town this small, you get to know, or at least know of, pretty much everybody. I draw out my phone, thumb out a quick text to my son, Daryl. Hey, big guy. You home? How's grandma? And while I'm waiting, unable to stop myself, I text his sometimes-maybe-girlfriend, April. How many people? Stay safe, okay? Anyway, April's the kid Daryl wants to be his girlfriend. And maybe she is. It's hard for me to be sure. The boy isn't exactly very communicative these days. Then again, he's in high school. I remind myself that it's normal. These days, I remind myself of that a lot and close my eyes. This is worse on the kids. It has to be. Going to high school here, all of the kids know each other. I sigh, check my phone again. It's 6.15 and Daryl isn't answering. Mom hasn't checked in. And if she isn't too thrilled with having to look after a moody teenage boy from 5 o'clock until whenever I eventually get home every night, I'd been hard enough on her back in the day. Neither is Daryl. He snarled at me only last night. I'm not a fucking kid anymore, Dad. I don't need a fucking babysitter. And I sure as fuck don't need Grandma. Pouty, arrogant little prick thought I'd raised him better. He's 16, I remind myself. He's just acting his age. So was the kid on tape number one, sneaking out of his basement bedroom window at night on a weekday, and it cost him his life. They were the same, our two victims, or nearly enough. Both teenagers, both part of the same throwback 90s goth crowd, full-on teen angst and rebellion, and as fundamentally naive and innocent as they were confused. Both of our victims had grumbled and rolled their eyes all the way to the honor roll last semester, and neither of them had ever been in any real trouble. I load the first tape transfer, punch in the time signature, 124. Everything leading up to that point is just a trailer for Ronin, a movie that had gone to video in February 1999. Whoever our mystery killer is, he didn't record on blank, unused tapes. He used old cassettes taken from the bargain bin at Blockbuster back in the day. On the originals, even the old gold and blue stickers are still in place. Kind of stupid, that. But he also knew enough to scotch tape over where the record guard tab used to be former employee, maybe. I was an old Planet Video kid myself. If you went back to when Clinton was president and dinosaurs ruled the Earth. The tape stops and freezes at 124. 
There it goes fuzzy before resolving into victim number one. I advance it to 125 and let it run to 128. Because that's when shit starts to happen. But it's the background details I focus on, much as I can. I make mental notes, not bothering to type them up. I'll do that later. If there's anything I didn't notice before, I won't forget. The chair comes from Home Depot, and the zip ties too. The feds ruled out Lowe's. The raincoat, or poncho, hard to tell as we can only see the sleeve in five frames, must be from out of town. But the disposable gloves are pure CVS, thin, opaque plastic. The killer is male, Caucasian, no surprise. Nothing new, nothing new. I shift in my chair, turning my attention deliberately away from the screen. I try calling Daryl directly. He can't blame me for that. I'm his goddamn dad. This is what dads do. The phone rings and rings. Pick up, son. Come on, please, pick up. When he doesn't, I reluctantly turn my attention back to the tape. Bucky Gunston is the younger of the two murder victims. Three now, I remind myself. Probably. I can't be sure. I haven't seen the latest tape yet. Came in only an hour ago, but it won't take long to process. It won't be long before I know. He was a slight kid, wiry, our Bucky Gunston. Zip-tied at the hands and feet, secured at his middle with what looks like a carpentry belt turned around backwards. The killer has pulled his shirt over his head and drawn it down his arms to the wrist ties. But Bucky's a mover and a shaker. His hands come up constantly as he rocks and jerks in the chair. There's fresh blood on his wrists, smearing his forearms. His voice howls in VHS hi-fi. What is that? What the hell is that? Let me go, you freak! That's when the gloved hand comes into view, patting his face. The killer's face follows into frame after, leaning in, looking directly into the eye of his shaky handheld camcorder. Naturally, he's wearing a mask, a cheap pullover latex thing that's supposed to turn him into... what? It's no character that anyone in law enforcement can recognize. Just an ordinary face with an explosion of long, black, fake hair that might suit a glam rocker from the 80s. But only half of that face is smiling. The other half frowns. It's not from town, that mask. Neither is the carpentry belt, nor were they purchased from Amazon or any other big online retailers. FBI seems to think that they were hand-me-downs, forgotten junk just lying around in somebody's attic or garage. Might have been one in a cheap eBay auction. If so, that kind of transaction can be tracked, but it'll take a while. Internet's a big place. There's a hard cut to black at 139, and then the whole production goes seriously old school. 
the tape goes silent, and that's because this part is manually spliced in. Literally, on the original, the tape was cut with scissors, and a new segment was scotch-taped into the gap. Yes, you can really do that. Taping tape was how we used to fix videos that had gotten eaten up by dirty VCR heads. Happened all the time with repeat rentals, and with people who couldn't be bothered to clean their own equipment. The segment is short, one of two spliced into the reel, black screen with a caption. Do you want to see my face, Bucky? My real one? Back to Bucky, back to the handheld footage with audio. He's looking away, eyes clamped shut, leaking tears. His entire demeanor is transformed, and not only by the question, which to him, I assume, was spoken aloud. The quality of light has changed in the room. There's a window somewhere. It's later in the day. He's pleading, earnest and desperate and scared. No! I haven't seen your face, okay? I don't know who you are. Please, please, man, just let me go. Let me go, okay? I haven't seen shit. I don't know fucking shit, okay? Please, please! Cut. Yes, you do. Look at me. It doesn't matter. Look at my face. I don't know if Bucky ever looked. The next time he appears on screen, it's over. He's dead. The killer is finished with him, and the handheld cam lingers over his work. I stop the feed at 2.10 and shake my head at the screen. Even though I've seen this horrible, nightmarish clip two dozen times or more in the past week, I want to be sick. But I can't look away. The captions. He's hiding his voice from us, of course. But that's how Bucky knows him. I'm not the first to reach that conclusion. And it doesn't matter, anyway. The pool of suspects is pretty much everybody. He's my age, at least. The things he knows. And the precautions he's taken to shield his identity. Minus the fingerprints, which is an oversight so obvious it's difficult to fathom. Seem to indicate he has some idea of how we might catch him. He can't get away forever. He knows it. He's not trying to. At this point, he's having as much fun as he can while it lasts. I eject the first tape, load up the second. Michael Driscoll. I advance the reel up to 136, past the 20th Century Fox commercial and the trailer for Home Alone. And there he is. The place is the same, but the circumstances are different. Michael's fully dressed. Any other town, his Green Day t-shirt would have been two generations out of date for a kid his age. But around here, a whole clique of this 90s anarchist goth crap had established itself in both our middle and our high schools. But Michael was almost an adult. He should have gone through it and come out the other side by now. But no. It would have been frustrating, 
If only he were still alive and people could try to talk some sense into him. On the screen, he's bound to the chair the same way Bucky had been. The carpentry belt is crusted with splattered black bloodstains. Unlike Bucky, he's blindfolded and gagged with gray duct tape. Over his ears, over his matted black hair, a pair of noise-canceling headphones block him out from the sound of his killer pacing the room, block him out from the world. Both the duct tape and the headphones were easily traceable, Office Max and Best Buy, respectively. But our poncho-wearing psychopath either doesn't realize or doesn't care. Unlike Bucky, he doesn't want Michael to know who he is. Daryl knew them both. He was friends with them both, but he was closer with Michael. I pause the tape. I know what's coming next. I have to deal with it. I know I do, but for just a moment, I simply can't. I'd had this kid over for dinner last month, made sloppy joes, was almost the cool parent for a few hours. I text Daryl again. Son, please just tell me where you are. I won't yell, I promise. I just worry. It isn't safe. And April. Jesus, would it kill you to answer me? I just want to know how many people are there. And I'm the COP. But she'd be busy. It's almost seven. By now, the candlelight vigil for Michael and Bucky, which had been April's idea in the first place, is well underway. And damn it all, if there are enough people there, then I can rest easy. There's safety in numbers, both for her and for Daryl, and for every other kid who runs around in their stupid, misguided circle of friends. All she has to do is fucking tell me, put my mind at ease, so I can do my fucking job. I tap Daryl's contact button yet again, switch to speakerphone. Pick up. I grit my teeth, sweating. I tell myself I shouldn't be freaking out so much. This is nothing out of the ordinary. He's gone radio silent before, too many times for me to count. It's just. Pick up. It's just there's something uncanny about the 90s videos. The 90s culture rearing up again in our kids. In my kid. That connection has to be random. It just has to be. Marilyn Manson. Columbine. Jonesboro. School violence was a nationwide obsession in the 90s. Those were kids. This is an adult. Those were shootings. This is... uh, Deny it all you want, Chief. The truth will out in time. This is, uh... What? There's still no way to know. What could have done that to Bucky Gunston and Michael Driscoll? What could have done that to their faces? No kid could have done it. No kid in this world. 
and least of all. I text mom. Call me. I need to talk to you. Where's Daryl? But I know. He'd snuck out to go to the vigil. Yeah, he's hurting. And anyway, there's April. She'll be there. I just need to hear from mom. Because... Because she's my mother. And I'm scared shitless. I unpause the tape and go straight to the advance button, skipping all the way up to the four-minute mark. I don't need to see the part where the killer wraps an additional layer of duct tape over Michael's head, then another, then another, finishing over his stifled screams until there's only his nose left. But what's at the four-minute mark is worse. So much worse. I need to see it anyway. I need some hint as to what tool, what devilish contraption had been used at the end. There had to be some clue. It couldn't have been a saw. It couldn't have been an axe. The tape stops. There he is. Michael, his face mostly concealed in duct tape mercifully dead from suffocation before the final outrage. The same Bucky had suffered while still alive. I watched the tape, eyes wide, stomach churning, one hand over my mouth. What could have split their faces so perfectly, so evenly, so completely in two? Every object that leapt to mind could only have managed to mangle them utterly, beyond recognition. The whole skull structure would eventually, inevitably, come apart under that level of destructive duress. And that's when the phone rings. Not mine, not the one I have in my hand, but the landline phone. I snatch it up my hand shaking so badly I nearly drop it and have to cradle it at the juncture of my shoulder and neck. I'm about to introduce myself, but I'm cut off before I can even start. Tell me something, Chief. Do you have a detachable electric circular table saw at home? My breath catches. It's Special Agent Mac, FBI, who I know is in the same building I'm in right now who could have walked right over here and asked me that question in person. I can't answer him. It's all crashing in now. Of course it is. I've known all along. I just haven't let myself confront it yet. Really? Can you blame me? I mean, what would you have done in my place? Yes, I have a detachable table saw. Quite the video collection, too. Not that I've done much with most of it in the past 20 years. Some things are just hard to throw away. There are a couple of old gems I pop in once every blue moon. But for the most part, they just gather dust. 
Agent Mack, what the fuck are you? Prints on the last tape came in, Chief. Got a match. Really? I struggle for calm. For at least the facade of calm. Even as my mind and heart and soul are split at the fucking seams. Even as I recall quite clearly showing a riveted 12-year-old Daryl how to mend our precious Star Wars tape. Go ahead, Asian Mac. Speak. It was irreplaceable. The original cut before the special editions with the new and improved special effects came out in the late 90s. How he'd cried when that tape had got wound up in the wheels. And how he'd rejoiced when, instead of fixing it myself, I'd shown him how to fix it. Silence on the other end. I count the seconds. They could be here anytime. But then he does speak. I know you didn't do it, Chief. You're too big to be the guy on the tape. We've still got a problem. Forgotten in my other hand, my personal phone lights up at last, vibrating a silent alert. A text. But on the landline, directly into my ear, Agent Mac's voice is clear. But the prints on the tape are yours. How about that? I turn my phone up in my palm and read the message. It's from Mom. Help us. You want to know what he did on this one, Chief? Video number three? I shake my head, but do not answer. My cell phone stares up at me. The words on the screen begging pleading with me. Agent Mac continues, almost conversationally, while the sound of hard shoes approaching grows steadily louder from outside of the room, from either end of the hall. He didn't kill anyone new on tape three, so that much is good. No, this dumb, punk-ass fucknut for a son of yours tried to machine-staple both sides of two human heads together, Chief. And... Stop it. I think, closing my eyes hard, praying now. God, please make him stop. But I don't hang up on him. Another message from Mom. He's going to kill us. Both of us. Help. He wanted to make the Michael half smile and the Bucky half frown. How fucked up is that, Chief? Not that any of it really worked. Fucking impossible making that shit stick together. I dropped the receiver. Mom still has her phone. There's a chance. Still a chance. Even with the doors opening and my own cops coming to... The screen goes dark. Then lights again. An incoming call. Same number. They're in the room with me. My cops, women and men who work under my command, guns drawn, shouting commands, and the voice of my son, my phone still on speaker, fills the interrogation room. 
confidential pieces of information. They can be some of the most precious things we'll ever possess. Some are worth sharing. Some should remain buried. And in this tale, shared with us by author Tatyana Andreevna, we meet a girl who's always learned to keep her private things as locked away as possible. Performing this tale is Sarah Thomas. So make sure you keep things to yourself, if that's what's best for you. But is it always best for everyone else? Sometimes it might be worth opening a jar of secrets. I started collecting secrets when I was just six years old. My Nana handed me a miniature mason jar. Put the secret in a jar, screw on the lid, and it will be safe forever and no one will ever know, she told me. I held it in front of me, arms outstretched, and focused my six-year-old mind on it, imagining the secret as a drop of rain falling into the jar. I followed Nana to the backyard, and we buried the little jar deep in the ground, underneath the old apple tree. Nana smiled, holding my dirty little hand, assuring me that the secret would remain there for years, and only I would know. The secret, which I accidentally learned by eavesdropping that day, was that Nana was sick and dying. At that age, I didn't know what death meant or what secrets were. Luckily, Nana showed me how to keep them. She didn't want my mother to know of her illness. She said she wanted us to enjoy our summer and be happy. She gave me a jar to bury this secret so that I wouldn't have to tell anyone. Nana passed away five weeks later, and I remember sitting by the old apple tree after the funeral, imagining that she was somewhere below, still holding the jar with our secret in it. Of course, I never told anyone what I had learned about Nana. It was locked away in that little jar, and only Nana and I knew. When I was ten, I buried my second secret under the same apple tree. You see, it was my fault that Shadow ran away. Mother told me to always shut the door when I left the house, even if just for a minute. Shadow was an old cat and would surely get lost if he ever got out. On that hot summer day, after hours of playing in the sun, I was overjoyed to hear the ice cream truck's tune as it made its way down my street. I knew that the neighborhood kids would already be lining up as I grabbed my allowance earnings and sprang out the front door of the house. I knew I should have shut the door behind me. I knew Shadow was hanging around the entrance of the house. I suppose I was a selfish child. I didn't want to miss out, and I certainly didn't want to end up at the back of the line. I knew I should have paused or went back, especially when I saw, from the corner of my eye, Shadow making his way outside, sniffing the air around him. After I finished my ice cream cone, I searched and searched for him, but it was too late. 
he was gone. I knew Mother would be coming home soon, so I went back, shutting the front door, and sat in front of the TV in the den, as if I never left. I was so afraid of getting in trouble. Poor old Shadow never returned, and I swore up and down to Mother that he must have escaped through the window, that I never left the house and never opened the front door. Maybe Shadow is still out there, and maybe he will discover my secret lies buried in the dirt one day. To my dismay, my track record with pets wasn't great. I can admit that now. When I was 12, I begged and begged Mother to get a dog. I promised I would walk it and feed it and play with it, but Mother insisted I couldn't take care of it. One day, as I was walking home from school, I stumbled upon an injured puppy under a bush. It was tiny, maybe a week old, and fit perfectly inside the palm of my small hand. Its mother was nowhere around, and I knew that if I brought it home, if I saved it and showed just how well I could take care of a pet, mother would let me keep it. I snuck the puppy into my sweatshirt pocket, almost running up the stairs to my room. Mother was still at work, but she would be home soon, and I would show her my good deed. I sat on the floor, cradling the puppy in my hands for three hours. I tried to feed it leftovers and tried to give it water, but alas, it only wiggled its paws occasionally and refused to take any of my offerings. I hid it under my bed, just until it was well, until it was happy and healthy and I could show mother. By the next morning, the puppy was no longer moving or responding or breathing. Tears streamed down my face as I climbed the stepladder and opened the kitchen cabinet. There, I found a large mason jar to hold my sad secret. I couldn't let mother know that I failed. Then I would never have a pet. The tiny, limp body slid into the jar with ease, and I tightened the lid, sobbing for the life of this poor animal and for my own shame. While mother was at work, I buried this secret next to my other ones. I was good at keeping secrets. They had gotten bigger and bigger through the years, yet I still managed to keep them in their safe and secure spots where they belonged, adapting the size of each jar to fit as needed. I always made sure that the dirt covered them wholly and evenly so that new grass could grow over them. Mother did not like my jars. She cried inconsolably the first time she found me burying one at night, after my date didn't go as well as planned. But as the jar collection grew under the apple tree, Mother stopped crying and stopped looking through the missing section of the newspaper in the mornings, as she had always done in the past. Eventually, she stopped talking stopped leaving the house. She sat in front of the TV for hours every day, never lifting her eyes away from the screen. At first, I thought she was upset for the yard. The fresh dirt was an eyesore compared to her beautiful garden, 
and I assured her that grass would grow over soon. It always did. But it was my jars that brought her grief. So you see, Mother, that's why I had to put you in this box. I know it's not a jar, and I know it's bigger than the other ones, as you'll see when I'm finished digging. I didn't mean to do what I did. I know I shouldn't have been holding that bat, and I know I should not have struck you so hard. But now I must bury this secret, too. And I agree. This box is better than the jars I've used for the others. Those were so much work. So much sawing and chopping and burning for everything to fit. No. This box is bigger. Roomier. And I know it will also keep my secret. When a couple have been together a long time, things can start to get frayed. Things go unsaid that should probably be spoken, lest they fester, corrupt, come up when you least want them to. And in this tale, shared with us by author Brendan Wysocki, we join a couple with many unspoken things hanging between them, but at least they share a love of carrots. Performing this tale are Graham Rowett, Jessica McAvoy, and Mary Murphy. So it's up to you whether you want to answer the knock in the middle of the night. Maybe it would be better to ignore it and let things be. Or maybe you should open the diver's door. Can't you hear that? Get up. I'm not curious. Get curious. Kim, if we get out of bed for every sound... If we got up for every sound, what? What? If we got up for every sound, what would that mean? Finish the statement, David. Statement? It's an expression. Go out there. See what the noise is. Let's shoot to see who leaves the bed. You can have odds I'll take evens. It's 3 a.m. It's too late at night for numbers and counting. Exactly. It's late and there's nothing out there. Those are breaking in sounds. We'll do rock, paper, scissors. Fine. But one and done, no best of three. There's danger on the other side of that wall, and you think we have time for a tournament? There's no danger. Come on, let's get this over with. On three. You want scissors? Never go paper. I couldn't risk losing. I need to stay under this comforter. It's freezing out there. Just because I'm from California doesn't mean I can't handle cold. Let's set the temp to 64 each night. Think of all the money we'll save. You're really going to let me go out there? By myself? You don't have to get out of this bed, Kim. It's a nothing sound. It's not nothing. Someone is meddling with our lock. If something happens to me, 
It's on my conscience. It's a girl. I should call her a woman, but she's not acting like an adult. Like in her 30s, early 30s. Quite the attractive yuppie. But she's really trying to get in here. A woman? Look who got out of bed. What? I'm interested now. It's not a nothing sound anymore. Let me get a look through that peephole. Might as well turn on the lights. She might see. I think we'll be fine. Except for me. I'm hungry. Why is she trying to put a key into our lock? She's quite determined. She's doing an awful job if she's trying to break in. She thinks she lives here. Determined indeed. Wants to open this door bad. I haven't seen her in the building before. Late night carrot craving? It's not a craving. I'm hungry. The refrigerator is empty except for your smelly protein shakes. Break your rule. We don't need to go grocery shopping together. Maybe she knows she doesn't live here. Maybe she's an ex-girlfriend of the previous owner. Never returned her key. Here for revenge. She probably wants to trash our place. David, her key doesn't work. The key she's using doesn't work. Wait till she sobers up and she'll find the correct key on the chain. Little surprised she hasn't yelled, You changed the locks! Yelled at who? Her ex-boyfriend, ex-girlfriend, ex-partner. It's not revenge. She'd be hollering up and down the hallway at this point. Yelling the name, decrying all the wrongs. A prelude to condo destruction. Maybe she's trying to get back with her ex. She wants to get in bed with him, surprise him. She thinks she lives here. I don't think I've seen her around here before. She does seem nice. How can she seem nice? She's trying to barge into our home. She's moving to the other side of the hallway. She's dropping to the floor. She's just staring straight ahead. Shh, quiet. She'll hear you. And then she'll ask us to let her in, and you will. If she hasn't heard us yet, she's not going to. When can we put the shades down again? Scratchy might come back. You should have never given that dog a name. What do you mean? It was a stray, and it kept barking all the time. You act as if Scratchy won't come back. Keeping the shades open 24-7 isn't going to bring the dog back. This way, when he comes back, we'll get to see him sooner. Make sure Scratchy gets a bowl of water and food. Now that you'd get out of bed for at three in the morning. Obviously, Scratchy wouldn't be a nothing sound. Another carrot? The barking at all hours was terrible. It wasn't that bad. You should have never named that dog. It's like naming the lobster at the grocery store before you buy it. It's simply going home with you only to end up in boiling water. Kim, that's not even an appropriate comparison. Yes, it is. You should have known better than to get attached to a stray dog. We weren't going to eat Scratchy. You're taking this comparison too literally and way too seriously. Do you remember what the vet said about Sadie? The vet said a lot of things. Never mind. She's taking out her mobile. Mobile? You're British now. She's calling someone. She's saying... Fucking voicemail. Yeah, I'm calling about the locks you changed. Yeah, why were our locks changed? You put in a new carpet, a new color of paint in the hallway, so you have to change our locks? Why was this done on a Saturday? In fact, 
Why did the hallway even need to be remodeled? This is a gross abuse of power, negligence with our money, unnecessary expenditure. The old hallway was fine. Are the association dues going to need another crucial raise? How does remodeling our hallway give you the right to change the lock on our doors? I don't think you have the authority to do this. How am I going to get into my home? Every floor looks the same. She must not even live in this building. Man, does she really think she lives here? Let's slip a note under the door. And say what? Let her know she's in the wrong building. Maybe we invite her in. Big grown-ups. You would like that, wouldn't you? Come on. You're a little fetish. What? You think I'm devising a plan to seduce her? Who even let her into the building at this hour? We should have bought a place with a doorman. We can't afford a place with a doorman. Eh, pretty soon. All that money we're saving at 64 degrees. She's crying. Oh no, drunk sobs. If she starts wailing, I'm calling the police. No sobbing. Simple tears. Just dropping from her face. Give it a sec. The sobs will come. We should let her in. Let her in? Why not? Did you forget that your threesome fantasies almost ruined this marriage? You can't be serious. Why wouldn't I be? You fixed me before we got our license. See it over there? The paper your mother had to have framed? Kim, where's this coming from? It's been years. Fine. We will politely and calmly say through the door, this isn't your home. You need to go away. It's very late. Something bad could happen to her if we send her away. We're not her life babysitter. These are her Saturdays. I'm going to open the door. Maybe something bad should happen to her. You don't mean that. Just because she's a girl doesn't mean something horrible won't happen to us if we let her into our home. You don't mean that. She could be a scam artist. This is all an act. A ruse. She weasels her way into our home and then robs us. Or murders us. She could be a serial killer. This is her theme. Her niche. There are no women serial killers. What? Women don't kill? Yes, they kill, but not in droves. Name one woman serial killer. Let me get my cell phone and I will tell you. That's not how it's supposed to go. I ask, name one off the top of your head and you name one. Fine, let's say she's a con artist. Fine, she's a slice and dicer. She can create little pieces of us. We should still do something. Yeah, we keep the door locked and go back to bed. That girl will be passed out soon. Let her stay in the hallway. It's warmer out there anyway. I just want to get inside. Let me inside. She heard you. She didn't. She's not right. Listen to that tone. She's drunk mumbling. We can't let her stay out there. This isn't a drunk person. 30 seconds ago you said- Can't you hear it in her voice? Hear what? She's just sitting there still, back against the wall. Still in that thick winter jacket. I don't want to be in the hallway anymore. Does she still have her hands calmly on her lap? Yes. Leave her out there. It might mean she's not drunk anymore. I don't think she was ever drunk. Let me inside. I should call the police. That's crazy. We should open the door. We are not opening the door. What are you hearing? She's not right. This isn't right. She's drunk and pleading to no one. David, take your hand off the deadbolt. David, stop! Don't unlock the second handle. Stop! 
I called Animal Control. What? I informed Animal Control where they could find a stray dog. The dog wasn't harming you? You were going to let that dog stay here. And that would be terrible because... Just because I didn't get all strange, believe a dog outside my window was a reincarnation, doesn't mean my feelings for Sadie are any different. The reincarnation was a theory. Why did you call? Why? I don't know, because it was a stray and should be looked after? They might be able to find its owners. Why? I don't know, because the dog kept barking and I needed sleep? We can't let strays into our home. Our home. What happens if they don't find the owners? That's not our concern. You know what happens. You're overreacting. So you think I want to open the door for this woman to make up for not letting in Scratchy? Something is not right about this. That woman is not dangerous. And Scratchy wasn't dangerous. Don't confuse the two. You didn't have to call animal control. We could have discussed Scratchy. When? Between you staring at the dog from the window or when you were playing in the gross alley with it? Are you glad Sadie's gone? Give me that carrot back. Don't dry the carrot with a paper towel. It's wasteful. Don't use up all the carrots. It's not true. What? How can you think that about me? I want to be inside. Please. Well, I never thought you'd call animal control. I want to be inside. Please. You're welcome to use my phone, Kim. Go ahead, call the police. I'm going back to bed. One more look through the peephole. Your wife should have called the police, David. Working as a hacker stealing financial information isn't perhaps the most honorable profession. Even when you're just hanging out in a mall, swiping small amounts from people who likely won't even notice it. Even when you're a good person deep down. And in this tale, shared with us by author James M. Kennedy, we meet one such digital defrauder who still draws a very clear line when it comes to bad business practices. Performing this tale are Kyle Akers and Jeff Clement. So take this guy's advice. Some companies should never be supported. And if you agree, then definitely don't go to the Pacific Cafe. I'm not going to say my name, or how old I am, or even where this all took place, because it really doesn't matter. I also shouldn't say for reasons that will become clear later. All you need to know is that I live in a town somewhere in the middle of the country. Somewhere between the east and west coast, in a place no one cares much about. Where the people are nice, but that's all anyone can seem to say about it. For many years, I worked in a mall. Well, sort of. 
It was one of those huge faceless places with lots of escalators and multiple levels of shops and restaurants, dozens of brands you've definitely heard of. It was the kind of place that hordes of families and couples and bored teenagers will flock to on the weekends. They might go to run errands, get a couple gifts, buy a new pair of overpriced black jeans, or just walk around because, hell, it's probably the most interesting thing in town. Anyway, I didn't work at the mall per se, I rather worked inside the mall. Every morning, I would find some random spot to sit down, grab a cup of coffee, flip open my laptop, and connect to the mall Wi-Fi. You know how people always say it's dangerous to connect to open networks because some malicious hacker might steal all your data? Well, that's me. With a few lines of code, some basic malware, and a little bit of patience, I could very easily gain access to every scrap of information that passed through the air. By redirecting the traffic through a fake router, just my laptop running some software, I could see every credit card number, address, mother's maiden name, and first pet people typed in. I could look over their shoulders as they entered passwords mess with their social media, manipulate what they saw on their screens, anything. To make most of my living, I'd usually set up and skim a couple bucks off of every transaction made at a particular store. I'd hit one store until I got bored, then moved to another without a trace. I would wait silently, a ghost on the wires, sifting through the data like a miner panning for gold, looking for anything shiny before, bam, got one. Enough info to log into some random guy's bank account, drain it of a couple bucks, and route the money to one of my own secure accounts. It didn't matter who I stole from, and I didn't care either. If they were so stupid they couldn't make their account password something other than password or use a pin other than 1234, whose fault was it really? People are so naive, so damn easy to steal from. A couple dollars here and there wouldn't make too much of a difference to them and meant that I could work for a couple hours a week. My biggest expenses beside my cheap single-bedroom apartment were the cost of driving to the mall and maybe buying myself a latte so I would have an excuse to sit there all day. A couple of months ago, I was riding up an escalator to find a new spot to work. My laptop was stuffed inside my backpack, bouncing lightly as I walked through a crowd of parents with strollers. Kids pressed up against displays of shops filled with brightly colored shirts, expensive designer bags, organic beauty products, shiny new phones, and all kinds of other stuff. Most of it was knockoffs overpriced faux designer products made in some factory in China. I made my way past several of these stores, glancing around for somewhere new to set up shop, before I saw a little spot tucked away that I hadn't seen before. The Pacific Cafe. Huh. Had it just been renovated or something? Maybe a new store? I stepped inside and glanced around the room to see it packed with lots of 20-somethings working on their laptops, earbuds in, sipping on their lattes. The coffee shop seemed trendy and cool, and the music was alright, so... I snagged a table in the corner under a couple photographs of palm trees and huts on a beach. I set down my bag. I walked up to the counter to order something. The barista behind the counter, who I later learned was the owner of the cafe, greeted me. He was a small man, maybe early 40s, with big, bright eyes and a wide smile that felt genuine. Hey, how you doing today? His peppy demeanor caught me off guard and felt jarring, compared to the typical unenthusiastic attitude of most mall employees. His voice sounded like something out of a commercial. Oh, uh, I'm doing well. Uh, can I get a iced latte with a pump of vanilla? His smile grew wider. Coming right up. Anything else? Nope, thank you. That's it. Great. That'll be 2.05. He was so damn cheery. Wait, two bucks, that's it? His eyes wrinkled. Yep, amazing coffee and snacks for a great price. (laughs) That's great. Is this place new? 
He chuckled to himself and rested his hands on his hips. Yeah, it just opened last weekend, actually. I'm in the process of hiring some baristas right now, if you know anyone. Make sure to pass along a resume, or if you're a coffee lover yourself, we can train you. <laughs> I, uh, actually work from here, or uh, for myself, rather. Oh, wow. Entrepreneur? Business owner? Self-employed? Yeah, you could say that. I work in software. He nodded as he pulled his gaze away to start making my drink at the espresso bar. Oh, man, amazing field. The things you can do online these days. <laughs> I was thinking of setting up a new system to order coffee in advance on your phone. So many interesting opportunities in tech these days. I smiled again and awkwardly stepped away, looking at my feet. I swiped my card and sat down. I liked the work I did, but it could be lonely sometimes to spend all day staring at a screen with little interaction. It felt isolating, given I also lived alone and didn't really have any friends, so it was nice to just chat with someone for the first time in days. I was surprised to find the coffee was actually amazing, and for half the price of every other trendy coffee place. I opened my laptop and got to work, scanning for a good network to sift through, pages of data scrolling before me. I was surprised to discover the fastest network at the mall was the Pacific Cafe Open Wi-Fi, which was strange to say the least. I ran a few tests and found that it was fast. Like, ridiculously fast. It must have been expensive as hell, and I couldn't fathom why the owner would need that kind of bandwidth. That kind of speed was hard to find anywhere, let alone in a random cafe. This was good enough, because it meant that lots of people would hop on the network, which meant more data and money for me. The shop became busier, and I set my bag in the seat across from me. After a few hours of sifting, I closed my laptop halfway and stood up to buy a snack. The scone I got was good and similarly inexpensive. After the traffic online began to slow, I walked out just before the shop closed. The owner grinned broadly and waved me goodbye. I waved back and stepped out, feeling good about my day. Having been productive and earning more than usual from the high volume of internet traffic, I smiled as I rolled down the escalator. Soon, I became set in a routine. Every day, I would walk into the Pacific Cafe, drop my stuff at the same table in the back, and order a drink and maybe a snack. I liked my spot in the corner because it was inconspicuous. There was also a storage closet or some door to my left that seemed to house ovens or whirring machines in a back area. The low, rumbling tone drowned out some of the chatter and music that felt sometimes overwhelming. And the food. My god, the food. The food and drinks were amazing, and... I often had to stop myself from buying a couple treats throughout the day, fearing it would cut into my profit margins. After a while, I limited myself to only buying something for breakfast and lunch. But again, it was so cheap it didn't matter. I came back every day for a month. The atmosphere was great, and I even started talking to some of the other regulars. A little bit of small talk, then I would offer to buy them a cup of coffee, and we would sit together to talk about whatever they were working on. If they asked me, I would always just say I worked from home as a coder and leave it at that. However... I soon noticed something odd about the shop. Sometimes during the week, the network would slow to a crawl for a few hours, as an unknown host uploaded a huge amount of data to the server. What was even more strange was the fact that all the data was heavily encrypted. This meant I couldn't see what was being sent directly, but after running some data forensics, it appeared that it was sending hundreds of photos and videos. Massive files with troves of data. Who was using the network? What could it possibly be sending? Perhaps something pirated? illegal or maybe valuable? You can sell all kinds of data on certain parts of the internet for plenty of money. I started neglecting my usual work to unravel this mystery. 
I tried a few tactics to unmask the data. I ran powerful programs to decrypt it with brute force, but no dice. I could see file names, but they were all long strings of letters and numbers, gibberish with no discernible pattern. About a week later, the network began to slow again, and I fired up a few new programs. Terminals and programs covered my screen and the fans of my laptop whirred. I worked quickly, trying to find a new way to reverse engineer the encryption keys before... Hey, anything I can get for you this afternoon? I glanced at the time. I'd already been there for hours, but hadn't bought anything. Uh, yeah, uh, sorry. I'm just really busy. Can I get a almond milk latte with a double shot of espresso? The owner smiled, his eyes locked unblinkingly with mine. Of course. I'll have that ready for you in just a sec. I picked up my drink and looked back to my screen, trying to remember what I'd been doing. I finished a few lines of code on the open terminal and hit enter. New windows opened, and the reverse encryption program began to work its magic. I sat back and leaned my head against the wall, my eyes tracking the loading bar's progress. I turned my head to watch the owner making a latte. He saw me watching him and flashed his usual, odd smile. And then I heard a small muffled scratching from what seemed to be behind the wall. I pressed my ear to the drywall near the closet door and heard only the low thud of machines and what almost sounded like voices. I was interrupted by a ding as the programs on my screen instantly closed and a new terminal window opened with a wall of numbers and letters. The encryption key. I typed furiously, my fingers flying over the keyboard to begin the process of decrypting at least a few of the folders. Soon it was ready. I hit enter and waited. The rush was exhilarating. I decided to roar myself and refuel my tired brain, so I stepped up to the counter for my second almond milk latte of the day. The owner smiled and stared at me intently. Hmm. Anything else I can get you? Yeah, I'll have the same double-shot latte with almond milk, please. I tossed a few dollars from my wallet and looked back to my computer. Hey, no problem. Coming right up. Maybe a bite to eat as well? He smiled devilishly and gestured to the case of danishes and scones. Sure, why not? I'll take a scone. Uh, two, actually. The shop was quiet that day, with only a few people working silently. The same lo-fi music played softly, and I tapped my fingers on the counter. I had a few minutes of waiting for the program, so I decided to make some small talk. The owner seemed friendly enough. You guys make all this stuff yourselves? Yep. We make all of our almond milk, pastries, and other treats fresh every day right in the back of the store. Oh, I didn't realize you made everything. Yeah, we grind all of our own coffee using imported premium beans, and we mix quality ingredients to make our food using our own brand new baking area and large ovens. He laughed as he flipped a switch on the espresso machine. I smiled, but all I could think about was seeing what someone wanted hidden. <laughs> We're actually thinking of ordering a couple more. We're making a lot of extra snacks and breakfast items in the back that we managed to sell to other shops here in the mall. I nodded absently and stared off toward the bathroom so I wouldn't have to make eye contact. I glanced back towards my computer. Here you go. Thanks. I sat down and set my drink aside. I scrolled through the pages of folders with bizarre names. My eye is passing from one folder to the next, looking for a pattern, anything. Each folder was large, and they were arranged in no particular order. The owner set down a plate with my scones, and I jumped. Here you are. Just took these out of the oven. He grinned, but the smile melted away for a moment. Everything okay? You seem stressed. Uh, yeah, I'm okay. I just gotta get some stuff done before a deadline. I scratched my eyebrow quickly and flashed a weak smile. 
He smiled back politely, but I could see something different, something new, flashing behind his eyes. I probably imagined it. He turned his gaze to the customers in line. I went back to scrolling. Endless pages of folders with incoherent names sprawled in front of me until I saw it. A folder simply named Recordings, with a current date. Intrigued, I opened it. A page of images loaded, each several hundred megabytes large, so I knew they were high-quality photos. I double-clicked the first one and used some image software to open them as a slideshow. The first picture was of the Pacific Cafe, taken from somewhere up high, like a security camera or something. The counter and espresso bar took up most of the frame. The owner stood behind the counter looking at a customer as he handed back a few bills with a smile. I clicked past it. The next few images were also taken from some kind of security camera and showed what was the back room. A small kitchen with racks of pastries, limited counter space, and a big oven. Why the hell were these all being uploaded? Why not put all these stupid pictures on a hard drive? The owner stood back facing the camera as he removed something from the oven. I clicked past several similar photos before they changed. My heart dropped and I couldn't understand what I was looking at. All the pictures showed the same dimly lit room, maybe a basement or a storage room. Two kids sat on a dirty floor squinting up at the flash of a camera. Their clothes were tattered and they didn't look like they had showered in years. Around them were several large shadows of something obscured in the background. What the fuck? I felt the urge to throw up in my mouth. Why were they all kids? As I scrolled through more pictures, the angle changed. More kids. Different kids this time. The camera moved closer to their faces to capture a look of pain and terror. They were so young. Tears streamed down their faces, extending bloody, raw hands covered in white powder. This couldn't be real. I closed my laptop, leaned back in my chair, and tried to take a breath. My heart was pounding painfully in my chest. As I slowly lifted my gaze, my eyes met his. He was staring at me, his big, bright eyes burning into me, as if he somehow knew. He turned and went back to wiping counters. I took the rest of the day off. I drove back to my apartment and stared at the ceiling for hours. I didn't know exactly what I'd seen. I didn't know what to do or who even to go to. I went through the motions for a few days, gathering only tidbits of stolen information, and eventually took a few days off. I came back to the cafe the next week, determined to do something. I had to make myself look. I put on my headphones to focus, opened the folder again, and clicked on the last image I'd seen. I flicked past them quickly, trying not to spend too long looking at each picture. What was he doing to them? Why would anyone do something like this? I forced myself to look again and again, pushing aside my anxiety and swallowing the rising bile in my throat. I navigated back to the folder and opened it. While the first images had shown kids sitting on the floor of the same large, dimly lit room, they were now dressed in small, clean aprons. More pictures showed them crying but covered in more white powder, which I realized was flour. What were they doing? What was this sick bastard making them do? But as I scrolled through more surreal pictures and short videos, I suddenly realized that they were cooking. Faces crying, chains wrapped around their small arms. They worked and folded the dough into bread, then cut into slices for sandwiches. I could almost hear the echoes of their cries in my mind. Some of them looked older, maybe ten or so, but most looked younger. They wore the same aprons marked with a small logo that I recognized instantly. The Pacific Cafe. Grainy pictures from behind showed them crying as they stacked and loaded dozens of trays into industrial ovens. Others showed them as they stared dead ahead, eyes glazed, skin gray and bodies thin as they worked large mixers to grind coffee beans. Who were these kids? 
Where were they from? My breathing grew heavier as I clicked and scrolled and stared. Now they stood leaning next to rusty, exposed pipes, hands scarred and faces bloodied. Twisted smiles sat on their lips as they sat in squalor, working and baking. At times, they appeared to be laughing, but their eyes showed they were anything but happy. They never looked directly into the camera, always just above it, as if they were looking at someone. And there he was. In a few photos, I found the owner stood there with them, making cakes and pastries, grinning at his little worker bees. A demented smile always stretched across his face. I closed my laptop halfway and stood up quickly. My heart hammered in my chest as I strolled over to the bathroom nervously, careful not to look at anyone. I tried the door, but it was occupied. I stood outside, tapping my foot and staring against the wall. My eyes passed over a sheet lazily taped next to the door. It showed a floor plan, with the fire exits marked for emergencies. As I regarded it, I noticed something unusual. It showed the entrance, the main room with seating and the espresso bar, a tiny back room behind the counter, and a small hallway I was standing in, leading to two restrooms. What I didn't see, however, was any indication of the door to the left of where I sat. No closet marked, no doorway, no room, nothing. And yet, I knew there was a door there that should have been marked. Wheels began turning in my head and the hair stood up straight on the back of my neck. I moved out of the hallway and sat back down at my chair next to the unmarked door. I stared at the hundreds of folders and files in front of me, each brimming with more sickening, disturbing images. How many were there? How many had there been? I swallowed hard and knew I was on the verge of tears. I threw on my headphones and got back to work. I scrolled through images, copying them to my own computer. I stopped caring about any precautions. I had to do something, save something. Copying and pasting, copying and pasting. I added the dark collection to my own encrypted folder on my hard drive, moving quickly as I could because I wasn't sure how much longer the connection would last and I'd be able to see the files. Copying and pasting, copying and pasting, I clicked through more images, more kids, more tired, bruised faces that I struggled to look at, copying and pasting until the sound of a lock clicking. My heart sank to the pit of my stomach. I looked up to see there was no one left inside the cafe except for the owner. He finished locking the door and flipped the open sign to closed. He turned back to me and walked over, smiling. Everything all right? I slammed the laptop shut like it was a reflex and he sank into the chair across from me. He smiled his usual, odd smile. His gaze unflinching and his bright eyes locked on me. That was when I knew that he knew. I cleared my throat and tried to say something. Anything. I, uh, I'm I'm really tired and my deadline is, uh, like, I'm, (laughs) His hands clasped in front of him. He leaned forward closer to my face. He cocked his head to the side, his expression almost sympathetic. You don't seem all right. He moved closer, and I clenched my hands nervously, overwhelmed with hate and disgust. His eyes suddenly flipped into a frown, and he looked at me, confusion slowly passing over his face. He removed a phone from his pocket. He turned the screen toward me, eyes locked on mine. He smiled. (laughs) I uh, know what you've been doing. I can see everything you do here. He pushed his phone towards me. I looked down. On his phone was a screenshot of my computer's screen. It showed what I'd been looking at only seconds before. My desktop with terminals and folders open as I copied hundreds of decrypted files. Lines of credit card numbers and social security numbers set exposed in a separate window. 
I sat there, my mouth open, my lips trembling and eyes watered. He clicked the power button and I was left staring at my own horrified expression, the screen a black mirror. I looked down at my hands, I tried to think of something to say, but I could barely croak out a single word. Why? He smiled wider and set down his phone gingerly on the table. He glanced around before leaning forward and speaking in a conspiratorial whisper. Hmm. Want to know my secret? I promise I'll keep yours if you can keep mine. His white teeth shone and his bright eyes were empty. I nodded slowly. He chuckled softly. I felt a chill run down my spine. (laughs) The most expensive part of any business is staffing. Coffee is an especially hard business. Good people are so hard to come by. Coffee's expensive, and we have to cut costs to be competitive. He leaned back casually. Hundreds of children go missing every year, and there are thousands more orphans around the country that nobody wants. Nobody misses them. He frowned and shook his head. That's the thing. They can't all just live in foster homes or on the streets. Gotta have a heart, some compassion. They need to survive, but they can't get regular jobs, obviously. So I let them sleep here, feed them enough, and give them a little cash every week. He sipped his coffee casually, his smile growing wider by the second. Oh, it's great. They work all day in the back, six days a week. With my wage bill so low, I can offer low prices and great quality. He was giddy with excitement and his eyes flickered with sadistic joy. His hand moved to grab mine, but softly. (laughs) Don't feel bad, okay? You know how valuable data can be. You know what it's like, scraping by, trying to make some money in the world today. I stared down at my hands and mumbled slowly. I I don't I don't I don't do that sort of thing. It suits everyone. They can work here and it helps them. They wouldn't have anything otherwise. Poor kids. I continued to stare down at my hands, noticing how much my entire body was quivering as tears streamed down my face. He began to stand and push in the chair. It helps them. They help me. I make money so I can keep helping them, and you get a bargain. I couldn't bring myself to look at him. He stepped around the table, hands resting on my chair. I felt him move next to me, his head by my ear as he whispered more quietly now. I'm glad we could uh, clarify things. Keep my little secret. He dangled his phone inches from my face. And I'm sure I can keep yours. He grabbed me on the shoulder and squeezed it. Another coffee, buddy? (laughs) Snack, maybe? We'll be closed pretty soon, so this one will be on the house. He gave another cold, emotionless chuckle and walked back behind the counter. I sat and stared at my feet. After a few minutes, I slid my laptop into my backpack and walked out of the cafe in a daze for what I knew would be the last time. Weren't these jobs in the shelter better than nothing? What he was doing was illegal and wrong, but the same thing happens all the time, just thousands of miles away. I got home and sobbed. I stared at the ceiling and wished it would collapse and crush me. I sat alone for days, scarcely speaking or eating, only thinking and staring at my computer. 
The cursor of the login screen blinked endlessly. I sat, frozen, doing nothing but wishing I would do anything. I'm a coward. I didn't know how to help. Not going there anymore would be better for me and for those kids, but it wouldn't fix anything. It wouldn't really help them. I didn't know I'd help them. I saw them in my dreams. I heard their soft voices and whimpers echoing and swirling in my mind. I would listen to them cry out, and there was nothing I could do. I'd wake up every night crying and shaking. I couldn't bear it. After a few days, I just broke. I opened my laptop, logged in, opened a browser, and found a form to send an anonymous tip to the FBI. I compressed the photos, put them in a folder, and attached them to my report. I listed the address and all the information I could find about the Pacific Cafe and clicked send. I knew my life was over, but I couldn't do it anymore. I waited and waited for a response. Anything at all. By that evening, I received a notification that my request had been processed and that law enforcement in my area had been alerted. I nearly cried with relief. The son of a bitch would pay and he would die in prison. I hacked into the security cameras of the cafe easily and sat watching the feed until the morning. I didn't look at the video of the back room. I couldn't. I watched as the owner unlocked the door and began his day. He moved calmly from room to room, turning on the espresso machine, putting on the music, and walking to that awful back room to get the day's coffee and pastries. I smiled with relief when the police special unit broke through the glass and pinned him to the floor. Heavily armored officers with rifles knocked over tables and chairs, kicking past tables and smashing cabinets until they found the door. Several officers filed inside quickly. I was terrified for what they would surely discover. I glanced at the figure being handcuffed to the floor. I swear that for an instant he almost seemed to look up at the security camera and smile one last evil grin, like he knew I was watching. His dead eyes stared into mine one last time, and although it was faint, I knew he was laughing. Head forced onto the ground and his mouth bleeding, he still laughed and wore the same sick smile. Some of the officers walked back into the main seating area, but with nothing. Where the hell were the kids? One of the officers walked towards them, exchanged some words, and then moved casually towards the owner on the ground. What had he done with the kids? I quickly switched the camera feed to the back room and was shocked to see it was empty. There were several large industrial ovens and grinders, but no kids tied to the pipes exposed on the wall. Had he moved them? Where did he put them? A few officers milled around with flashlights, taking pictures and speaking to each other. My blood boiled, and I screamed. I threw my laptop across the room and smashed it into the ground until it broke to pieces. Even with what I'd done, he had won. And now I sit in my apartment several days later. I know they're going to come for me soon. Either the awful people that the owner of the Pacific Cafe likely works for, or the police, or the FBI, or the NSA are going to come breaking down my door and drag me away somewhere. But I don't care anymore. All I can see now are the images burned into my brain, all of their faces looping endlessly. I just want them to stop. So I'll sit here, staring at the ceiling, waiting for my time to come. Or maybe I'll be gone, gone like I never even existed. Like that man or those kids never even existed. A shadow disappearing without a trace. Something invisible and unseen. A ghost on the wires.
In our final tale, we join a man who's faced with one of the most devastating prospects, the death of a beloved pet. It happens, we know it's natural, but in this case, there's nothing natural about it at all. And in this tale, shared with us by author P.F. McGrail, we experience not only tragedy, but catharsis and revenge. Performing this tale are Dan Zapula and Mick Wingert. So we may not be hanging out with a certain Baba Yaga, but we're certainly hearing the story of a man who's prepared to kill the boogeyman. And the best advice we can give is to run, motherfucker. Nothing can compare to the feeling of loss when a pet disappears. Imagining the fate that befell them is excruciating. Did it hurt? Were they afraid we'd left them behind? And when do we press forward emotionally? When is the perfect time to accept a loss and move on? One of the most agonizing facts is that most people don't sympathize with the pain. Just get another one. It's not like you lost a person. It's just a dog. I know that they're trying to be kind. But most humans absolutely suck at that kind of sympathy. Which actively makes us feel more alone than we otherwise would. And that's why the pets in our lives are so indispensable. They're far more devoted to us than most humans ever will be. Animals really are the best people. Mipsy saved my life, to be honest, and she kept that secret between the two of us. On the day both of my parents died in a car accident, I was sobbing uncontrollably. With a bottle of cheap vodka in one hand and a different bottle filled with sleeping pills in the other. I kept asking who would miss me, and I kept crying harder. Border collies are usually full of energy, but Mipsy understood what I needed that night. She rested her head on my lap and refused to leave. So I told myself that I'd have my final drink when she walked out of the room and left me alone. And that's why I'm alive two years later. She never voluntarily parted with me, and now I really believe that I'll live to see my 30th birthday. I knew something was wrong when I came home from work and couldn't find her. I spent two days traipsing through the fields outside my home. There's a lot of open space around Davenport, Iowa. And I found her. After calling her name, I first heard a whimper, then a whine, and finally an urgent bark. I followed the sound to a small embankment where she was trapped in a tiny metal cage. Horrified, I scrambled to open it up. She was going ballistic, eager to jump on me and lick every part of my face at least five times. My own hands were shaking so badly that I was nearly unable to open the hinge. You best keep your hands off my property. 
I slowly turned around to see a man standing 15 feet away, shotgun cradled on his forearm. White stubble covered his face, and his steely blue eyes fixated unwaveringly on me. This is my dog. No, it's not. That's my dog now. I like to hunt. My hands were shaking uncontrollably, so I grabbed the cage for support. She's not a hunting dog. Just let us go. He smiled. It was not a kind smile. I didn't say she was a hunting dog. I did say you best be leaving now. I ain't gonna ask again. I stood defiantly. I'm not leaving without my dog. If you're going to shoot me, then do it. He spit on the ground. I ain't gonna shoot you. He pointed the shotgun at the cage. But I am gonna shoot your dog if you don't step aside. I wanted to beg, scream, and cry. I wanted to throw myself onto the cage to protect her. But the logical part of my brain guided me in that moment. Okay, I'm going to step back. It's okay, girl. I'm right here. We're going to be fine. Farther back, son. Well away from that cage. I followed obediently, moving thirty feet away. She's a live one. The man smiled as he walked toward the cage where I'd stood, then turned to open the door. Mipsy isn't a hunting dog, just let her go. She's not what you need. He laughed. The sound was about as pleasant as aggressive walrus fucking. This dog's exactly what I need, friend. She is the hunt. Mipsy bolted toward me. The man raised the shotgun in her direction. So you better make her run! Realization dawned as Mipsy jumped up to hug me. No, no! You can't hunt a dog! What the hell is wrong with you? He snorted. Dozens of successful kills prove that I can hunt a dog, friend. And there's no challenge like an excited border collie. (laughs) So if you want to give that canine of yours a sporting chance, I'd suggest you make it run. Time slowed. Mipsy was throwing herself against me, desperate for my attention after two days away. There was no way she'd leave my side. What should I have done? I owed her my life, not my happiness. She ran away after the fifth rock I threw at her. I loved her too much to spare my own feelings. Maybe she'd come back one day. At least that's what I told myself. The man swung his shotgun around and pointed it at me. I can see you love your dog, friend. So I'll compensate you accordingly. Purebred border collies are hard to come by, and I won't be letting this one go. I was screaming at him internally, but my mouth could find no words. Best thing you can do right now is walk away. I won't go after her till I know you've disappeared, so I'm gonna stand right here until you turn around and head back from whence you came. Then I'm gonna hunt your dog. It's only worthwhile when it provides a damn good challenge. We often say, I could never, 
when faced with painful choices. But life has a way of forcing us to confront those crossroads and deal with the devil we find there. There was nothing I could do but turn around and walk away. The open field featured clear visibility for miles in every direction. By the time I circled around and hoped to rescue Mipsy, both the hunter and the hunted were nowhere to be found. I searched all night, only heading home when I figured my odds were best if I went to a place that Mipsy expected to find me. She was there all right. I knew what the black and white mass on my doorstep was from a hundred feet away. I buried her next to the tree in my backyard where I'd scattered my parents' ashes. He'd left a note with an envelope next to Mipsy's body. $1,913 cash was stuffed inside. The message simply read, Just get another one. Animals are far more devoted to us than most people realize. That's a two-way street, of course. Many people fail to understand just how devoted we are to our pets. I don't think the man with the gun expected me to camp out in the open spaces around Davenport hoping that he would appear in a new location. He definitely didn't expect me to spend six months doing it. But the hunt's only worthwhile when it provides a damn good challenge. The man opened his eyes slowly. I wondered if he would have a few elegant words of wisdom to share. What the fuck is this fuck? Take a minute to get your bearings, friend. That tranquilizer gun I bought really is a doozy. He slowly focused on me. Fortunately, I had enough cash to buy the very best. Awareness dawned on him, and he panicked. Where the fuck are my clothes? Where's my gun? My smile grew wider. Oh, you won't be needing any of those, friend. I lifted my recent purchase and displayed it proudly. I had enough money left over to pick up this Oneida Eagle Phoenix lever action bow. Oh, I can't imagine hunting with anything else. We made steady eye contact, but I still noticed him pissing himself. It was kind of hard to hide that fact without any pants. You really don't shoot me with an arrow, kid. It could take a man all day to die from that. You don't want to do that to me. He was clearly terrified, but confident that he could win me over. I nodded slowly. Well, friend, I hate to be the one to tell you that you're wrong on both accounts. It can take a man much longer than a day to die from an arrow if you shoot him in the right place. I pulled one from my quiver. And secondly, I really, really want to do this to you. I breathed, adrenaline pumping through my body. You're just a person. It's not like the world is going to lose a dog. He walked slowly backwards as the first tears began to fall. I knocked my arrow in the bow. Run, motherfucker. 
as we place the letters back in their envelopes, it's time to take our leave for now. The musical score was composed by Brandon Boone. Our production team is Phil Mykolski, Jeff Clement, and Jesse Cornett. Our creative content manager is Olivia White. Our editor-in-chief is Jessica McAvoy. I'm your host and executive producer, David Cummings. Please visit thenosleeppodcast.com for show notes and more details about the people who bring you this show. On behalf of everyone at the No Sleep Podcast, we thank you for listening and being a supportive Season Pass member and for being ever curious. This audio production is copyright 2021 by Creative Reason Media, Inc. All rights reserved. The copyrights for each story are held by the respective authors. No duplication or reproduction of this audio program is permitted without the written consent of Creative Reason Media, Inc.